David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. Um, My name is Raul. If we haven't met before, it's good to have you with us. And this morning we are continuing with part two of our uh, David series from 1st and 2nd Samuel. And as the title suggests, this is a series on the life of David, which ultimately points to Jesus as the true king without pride or fault. It is him who can faithfully provide and protect us as we put our trust in him. And so it's a bit of a journey to get to David, and it involves two main characters. If this were a speed dating event, we would first need to meet Samuel and Saul before getting to David with his chiseled abs. (laughs) And today we're going to be taking a brief look at those two characters, Samuel and Saul. And if you need a photo for reference to help you imagine what they looked like, this is Saul right here. Um, That is a historically accurate photo. He, he invented this emoji, um, apparently. Um, but we are kicking the series off, and as Ed mentioned last week, ultimately, God is the main character, and he chooses to involve people in his unfolding plan to redeem the world, even if they're a bit messy like you and me. We're meant to see ourselves in these characters, which is no surprise because the Bible calls itself a mirror. It reflects us back to ourselves. And we have to be willing to look in the mirror from time to time and see what areas we need God to give special attention to. The Bible's not a textbook. It's not a recipe book with formulas. It's a living thing. It's active when we read it. It actively shows us God, and it actively shows us ourselves. And so as we read this together, we're taking a look in the mirror, and we're asking God, where do I need to see you today? What do I need to see today? And so today I'm talking about the grounds for God's delight, the foundation for a life that knows God's good pleasure And we'll find that it isn't necessarily in religious acts. It isn't in impressive offerings. It's in humility. It's in listening. And so I've titled today's talk, Where Delight Lies. Where Delight Lies. And before we get to our passage, I want to quickly bring us up to speed. Last week, Ed opened up with chapters 1 and 2, and we were introduced to Hannah, a woman of faith and humility who became the mother of Samuel. And Samuel was committed to God. He served in the tabernacle, which was a tent-like structure that held the presence of God. And he humbly served under Eli, the high priest at the time. 
But as Samuel got older, he grew up and became a leader and prophet over the people of Israel. But Israel at the time, they were still a vulnerable nomadic tribe. They weren't yet a kingdom. They were in the land, but they hadn't yet made it their home. In a sense, you could say they were still living out of moving boxes, trying to get fully established. And they were also a theocracy, meaning God was their king. But after a while, they saw how other nations were being ruled, and they wanted a human king for themselves. They saw other nations wearing army pants and flip-flops, so they wanted army pants and flip-flops. They trade God as their king for a human one, and in the story, God sadly declares, they've rejected me as their king. And so God humbly allows Samuel to anoint a king, and Saul is that king. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was a Jason Momoa-like figure. And the Bible says, this is from the message translation, this, the Bible says that he was the most handsome young man. There was none finer. He literally stood head and shoulders above the crowd. So you can picture what Saul looked like. But Saul had a quick rise to power and a slow fall. And our chapter marks the beginning of the end for Saul. And if I could boil this down to one reason, if I could narrow it down on, on one reason why Saul fell, it is this, pride. And so let's hear chapter 15, 10 through 23 from Sarah. Let's give it up for Sarah. Let's welcome her up to the front. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, he got up and went to meet with Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor, has turned down and gone to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, what then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared them the best of sheep and cattle to sacrifice the Lord your God. And we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said. And let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The, so, uh, the soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgad. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? 
To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Thank you. Very quickly, I want to point out one thing that most modern readers, myself included, have difficulty with. The build-up to this scene, along with several other scenes in the Old Testament, involves violence. And for nomadic tribes in the ancient Near East, this was a part of their day-to-day. Tribes would at times wage war with one another to secure three things. Food, family, and a future. And all of this was tied to land. And so there's no such thing as a pacifist. This is the world that we are reading about, and it is the world of the people that God was involved with. But Jesus, however, is the full revelation of God who comes not with a sword, but with peace. And so as we remember, as as we read and remember these uh, seemingly violent scenes in the Old Testament, let's remember two things, that number one, God is working with people for whom danger and death was a much more prominent part of life, and number two, that Jesus is a full revelation of God who establishes peace among people. That being said, let's take this scene as it is, let's resist the temptation to think of ourselves as morally superior, And most importantly, let's allow God to speak to us in the messiness of it all. Can we agree to that? Great. Um, Let's get to it. So Ashley, my wife, really enjoys reality TV, as many of you do. I enjoy documentaries and westerns, and we cannot be more incompatible in this area. She wants to watch Housewives, and I want to watch um, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But lately, I've seen the draw of reality TV, particularly in Vanderpump Rules. (laughs) If you haven't seen it, it's all the rage at the moment. It follows the lives of former employees of a restaurant in WeHo, uh, owned by Lisa Vanderpump. And among many things, the show highlights conflict. Conflict between friends and partners, exes and enemies. And one thing that's obvious is that the problems raised are rarely tied to just one particular thing that someone said or did. Conflict is often the result of a pattern of things that someone said or did. And that is the case in this story. Kings were supposed to be agents of God's reign, but Saul had cut God out. Saul refused to listen to God, and he had a pattern of not listening. He was meant to be the connection between the reign of heaven and earth, and that connection was broken when Saul rejected God. Pride was at the core of Saul's rejection. Saul's pride pushed God out of the equation. And pride is the assumption that you and I are sufficient in and of ourselves. It believes that we are at the center. It makes us think that we are in charge. It puffs us up to think that we are better than we actually are. 
and it makes us the ultimate authority in our lives. And naturally, this means that God gets pushed out while we put ourselves at the center. And this was Saul's problem. It's evident when Samuel the prophet goes to look for Saul and he hears that Saul is over at Carmel building a monument to himself. What that monument looked like, I have no idea. My guess is it was a statue of himself, um, but there's no historical record of that. But the author is telling us that Saul, by this point, had become consumed with himself. Pride had made a home in his heart. Saul pushed God out, but notice what he does. He holds on to the rituals of God. Pride can push God out of our lives and still retain the symbols and the rituals of a life with him. It can push God out of our interior lives while keeping the exterior of a life with him. Or as the prophets say, pride can make us act like we're worshiping God but not mean it. Pride wants the shell of God but not his voice. It wants the appearance, but not the substance of his words. And in the tone of God, we can see the pain that this causes over Saul's pride. Verse 11 says this. He says, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. In other words, pride isolates us from God, and that is a hurtful part. It grieves God's heart when we isolate ourselves from him. It grieves him because he loves us. It grieves God's heart when in our pride, we isolate him from our pain, from our plans, even from the mundane. Because pride assumes that God is either powerless or he's brainless. That he either can't do what needs to be done or he, does, or he isn't smart enough to know what to do. Pride isolates us from God's wisdom and his power. And we, are not to me- and we are not meant to be without God. We're not meant to be without his wisdom and his power. God wants to be involved. He always knows what to do, and he always has the power to do what needs to be done. But Saul, in rejecting God... In his pride, he pushed God out. And pride also forfeits the anointing. Anointing was a practice throughout the Bible. It was marked by pouring oil over someone's head and covering them. They'd be drenched. It was the ancient form of getting slimed on Nickelodeon. And people and places in the Old Testament were anointed, meaning they were marked for God's purpose. They were marked for service to God. And I grew up in a tradition where anointing was elevated beyond its worth. We were told to go after it, but only a few people had it. And maybe you grew up with that. The preachers were anointed. The prophets were anointed. The Old ladies praying in the back of church were anointed. And this means that the anointing had to be respected. It had to be honored. Those considered anointed were 
put on a pedestal. They were untouchable. And this idea actually comes from a misreading of this book. Because anointing was and is first and foremost for listening. Saul's role was to listen. This had been, and this idea has been misunderstood among some church traditions. Anointing wasn't to make a name for oneself. It wasn't for special treatment. It wasn't to gain influence. Anointing was and is first and foremost for listening. But Saul in his pride forfeited the anointing. In his pride, he made a name for himself. In his pride, he thought he was autonomous. In his pride, he thought he no longer needed to listen. And a good test to see where pride may be lingering in us, because we all have it, is to ask, how am I at listening? How am I at listening? Listening, the, the word for listening used in this story is, is more than just hearing. It's more than just hearing sounds. It's the kind of listening that we do when someone we love is sharing something they need from us. It's the kind of listening that we do when we're given wisdom about a difficult decision before us. It's the kind of listening that needs to be observed. It needs to be lived by. It needs to be obeyed. The listening expected from us is one that needs to be lived by. And that is what anointing is for. So Saul is rejected as king and in his pride he pushed God out, he aimed to make a name for himself, and he forfeited his anointing. And what the author is doing here is painting a picture for us. Saul is the embodiment of pride, and the author is setting us up for somebody who will embody the opposite of pride, humility. And throughout the scriptures, pride and humility are often contrasted. It's a major theme in the story of the Bible, and the author is painting a picture that Jesus would later give words to when he says this in Luke. He says, all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. So with Saul as the embodiment of pride, the stage is set for David. But David isn't entirely the opposite of Saul. There is one whose humility stretches further in the opposite direction. There is one who's anointed. There is only one who listens perfectly. There is only one whose sacrifice is pure, and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the opposite of Saul. He is the reversal of Saul. He is the counter-Saul. Saul is what Joker is to Batman. Saul's pride is the antithesis of Jesus's humility. Jesus succeeds at every point that Saul failed. And Philippians 2 tells us this. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he 
humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so unlike Saul, Jesus doesn't use his privilege for his own gain. Jesus voluntarily leaves the power and prestige of heaven. He humbles himself by taking the form of human nature. And unlike Saul, Jesus is fully obedient, even to the point of dying on a cross. Jesus fulfills the sacrifice that Saul intended to give and the obedience that Saul failed to give. If pride pushes God away, humility brings God in. And Jesus is God brought to humanity. He is the embodiment of humility. Jesus is the ultimate humble one. And here's the good news about that. It means that there are none too small for him. It means that there are none too unimportant or unimpressive for him. It means that there are none too broken for him. That Jesus in his humility comes to the least and to the greatest. And he comes with an invitation. Jesus asks, will you allow me to be the anointed one? the one at the center. Will you allow me to be the one who brings the resource of heaven into your life? And our response must begin with humility. Our English word for humility comes from the Latin word humus, which means fertile ground, and it implies that growth can only happen in humility. And this is interesting because the word of God is described as what? As a seed. When the soil of our hearts is dry and barren, the word of God cannot grow. And people are stunted in their growth and in their faith when the soil of their hearts isn't fertile. Saul could no longer grow as a king because pride had made the soil of his heart dry and barren. But on the other hand, when the soil of our hearts is humus, when it's fertile ground, we can listen to the word of God and it can be planted like a seed and grow. And that is when God can move. Have you ever come to church or read your Bible and thought, yeah, I, I know that verse. I've, I've heard it so many times. I know what you're going to say. When we do this, when this is our, our approach, in our hearts, it's like we're plucking the seed before it falls. Or if we come into a service and think, that song again, or I wish this person was leading, or that person was speaking, it's like setting up roadblocks that hinder growth. Instead, our posture should be, God, may the soil of my heart be fertile. May the seed of your word be planted in my heart. May I hear your word with freshness. Humility brings God in. It's the soil that welcomes his voice. It is what enables us to listen. 
And when we listen to God's word and live by it, that is where delight lies. God's delight is in our obedience to his word, not in sacrifice, not in impressive gifts, not in not in impressive generosity. It's in simple, it's in the simple day-to-day aim to obey and the aim to listen. It's in a posture of humility. And the best thing is that unlike Saul, we have the Holy Spirit. When we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves into our hearts and The Spirit energizes us to live by God's words. And thankfully, obedience isn't something that we do on our own. We have the help of the Spirit. Jesus calls the Spirit the ultimate helper. And for a long time, I had a uh, manual hand-cranked coffee maker, or coffee uh, grinder, And grinding beans in the morning was always a hassle, especially when uh, I was rushing to get out 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 of the door to get to work. And I did this for longer than I should have. But then Ashley got me an electric grinder. And it went from grinding coffee in about three minutes to grinding coffee in about 18 seconds. It was a game changer. And I think we can think of obedience in the same way. We think of obedience as something that we have to manually do on our own when the Spirit is given to us to energize us, when the Spirit is given to us to give us the tools and the discipline and the faith and the love to be able to live by God's word. In other words, the Spirit energizes us that that's the difference the Holy Spirit makes. And in, in, in the letter to Titus, this is what Paul writes. He says, the Spirit teaches us so that we can live sensible, ethical, and godly lives right now by rejecting ungodly lives and the desires of this world. The Spirit puts desires to obey in us. He furnishes our hearts with desires to live faithfully. And humility is the grounds for obedience. Without it, I think we'll find it very difficult to live this out. But interestingly, humility isn't something that we gain by focusing on it. It isn't something that we gain. It's not something that we grow in by by fixating on it. Instead, I think humility is something that we cultivate. It's like soil. We we cultivate it by recognizing that Jesus is greater than us, that his power is greater, that his wisdom is greater, that his love is greater. It trusts that his ways are greater than our ways. If pride clouds truth, humility reveals it. In humility, Jesus revealed the kind of God that he is the one who comes down to get into our mess, the one who isn't too busy to hear you, the one who isn't drawn away by those with more fame and more prestige. Jesus comes to you in his humility. And our humility grows as we raise him up like we did this morning, as we give him the rightful place in the throne of our hearts. 
And as I end, I think fear is at the root of pride. Fear that we'll be exposed, fear that we'll be forgotten, fear that we'll be taken advantage of. Pride says to us, exalt yourself or you will be forgotten. Put yourself at the center or you will be pushed aside. Fear is at the core of pride. And pride cannot exist where there is no fear. And Jesus, the exalted one, is the one who comes to conquer fear. He's raised to the highest place where none of us can be forgotten, where none of us are too small, where none of us are too insignificant, where none of us are too unimportant. Jesus is exalted to the highest place, and he sees you. This is what, how that passage in Philippians uh, ends. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, the exalted one, is not out of reach. He's not too important. He's not too busy. Humility means that he can be touched. And his exalted status means that he has the power to transform. And this is what he comes to do. When we humble ourselves, he comes to touch our lives and transform them. And so let us allow Jesus to be the exalted king that he is. He's not a secretary. He doesn't come to make our appointments. He doesn't come to organize our files, clean up our mess, do all that stuff. He does, but he's more than that. He's not a pet. He is the exalted king. And so as we humbly give ourselves to God, he promises to lift us up. He promises to exalt us, to, to um, deliver us from the pit is the language of Psalms. And the question for us is, will we faithfully give up control to be exalted on his time, or will we fearfully take it into our own hands and make it happen on our terms? Humility is faith lived out, while pride is fear lived out. And we are not people of fear. We are people of faith. Amen.